Good morning, everyone. So, today, we're talking about sex. Not something you usually talk about in a congregational setting, but it is something we should talk about. So, the title says we're going to talk about it. Already I've said it's sex, okay. We also use other terms for it. The nasty, the deed, making love, hitting it. Or as my brother coined years ago, fluffing the posturepedic. <laughs> there are many, many reasons to talk about sex. It's natural. It's about sexuality and a normal part of human development. And we need to stop treating it like it's in a dark corner of our societal bedroom. We're often silenced by societal norms that say we cannot discuss sex openly ridiculing or even silencing those that have non-normative sexual preferences and expressions reinforce violence in our society. As a society, we need to be able to talk and celebrate our preferences. If we aren't open in our words, we won't be able to seek help when we need it, live our lives in open, or be healthy in our sexual encounters and interactions. Everyone in healthy, consensual relationships, including the LGBT community, virgins, asexual people, should be accepted no matter what. Your choices are your own, and society needs to move beyond awareness of these identities and preferences to acceptance. The next question is key, though. How much harder are we making it on ourselves and our youth to talk about sex and consent in the bedroom if we can't talk about it anywhere else in our society. So, let's start talking right now about healthy, consensual sex. Let's start with the refrain from salt and Peppa's song, Let's Talk About Sex. Who knows it? Okay, so let's join me. Don't, don't make me sick by myself. But <laughs> Let's talk about sex, baby. Let's talk about you and me. Let's talk about all the good things and the bad things that may be. Let's talk about sex. Right? <laughs> so when I when it got around that I was going to be talking about sex, there were a lot of people who came to me, including Art, who asked if he could um, sing that song um, with Ann Stewart, and I said that would be lovely. Um, Carol Clayton started singing this song in the office the other day. Um, So there's been a lot of discussion around it because it's something we need to talk about. But we do talk about it, right? Sort of. Like in that song that we just all joined in. Scan your brain really quickly for all the songs you know that talk about caressing, kissing, getting naked, and having sex. Sometimes it's said poetically. Sometimes it's said crudely sometimes said bluntly. It's in our books, Fifty Shades of Grey, anyone? Poetry, our magazines, TV shows, movies, and even television ads for vacuum cleaners. (laughs) Right? Sex is everywhere. Everywhere. Except in conversations between adults and even between lovers. Now, why am I the one up here talking about sex today? the director of lifelong learning, who mostly works with our children downstairs. Well, I'm not a professional in this area, and I'll I'll be upfront about that. Um, But I have been teaching sexual health in different parts of my career since college. 
In college, I was a peer educator for the health and counseling centers where I talked in dorms to athletic teams and fraternities and sororities about healthy sexual relationships. Then my previous career was in university administration, and I worked a lot in student activities and residential life. As you can imagine, sex is something you need to talk about quite a bit in um, those settings. Later, I got trained in OWL for the middle school and high school. OWL is our whole lives, and I'll talk more about that later. And last summer, I got trained in adult OWL because people here at West were beginning to ask, when are we getting adult OWL? All these kids are getting OWL. When's our turn (laughs) to talk about sex? So I went to a two-day training this past summer and got trained in OWL. And sexual education is definitely a part of lifelong learning. It definitely has a place in our congregation, trying to attend to the whole body. Sex is part of our emotional and physical selves. Yet the only time you might hear adults talking about sex is when maybe they're trying to get pregnant or they're having difficulty in getting pregnant. They might say something like, well, you know, we started trying last month. What they're not saying is we are having more scheduled sex, right? (laughs) We simply don't talk out of our sex lives, even when most of us engage in sex in the past or currently engaged in sex or hope to engage in sex again in the near future. (laughs) Sex is as natural to our behavior as is eating, sleeping, breathing, pooping, another taboo topic. (laughs) And we are programmed to have desires to have sex because we need to reproduce to stay alive as a species. By the time we are 20, 75% of us have had sex at least once. By the time we are 50, 96% of Americans have had sex. It's part of being human. Now a caveat. Because we don't talk about sex... We also know very, very little about what others desires or want in their sex lives, and so we make assumptions. We assume it's what we desire or what the books say we should desire is what we all want. But that's not true. Like I just said right back there, that we're all programmed to want sex. That's not true for everyone. So let me put it out there right now. Like all human behaviors, it's a continuum. There are those people who desire nearly no sex, and there are those people who want sex all the time. It's the whole range. There is no right or wrong. It's just the way we are as human beings. It's individual like nearly everything else in our lives, yet we dive into relationships without even discussing how much, what kind. We jump into it all blind and just hope it all works out. That's probably not in the best interest for our relationships. In school, we teach our kids how to write, how to do math, how to bake cookies, how to build a box. But the only thing we teach our kids about sex are the mechanics. And even that is a fairly new development. My mom was born in 1948 um, in Iowa. And she didn't have any sexual education in school at all. She didn't know what menstruation was until she started to get her period. She didn't know that she didn't know really how you got pregnant. So when she was a freshman in college, she was necking with a boy, and she thought she was going to get pregnant. She simply didn't know. Now, she thought she would do better for me, and she did. Starting from the time I was six years old, she taught me about all the parts about a man and woman's body. She told me many times how a baby was made. When a man and woman love each other very much, and they're married, (laughs) a man... (laughs) 
man inserts his penis into the woman's vagina so that he can fertilize the egg that is traveling down the fallopian tube. (laughs) And that fertilized egg will attach to the uterus and grow into a baby. My mom was very proud that she had given me something that she had never gotten. However, (laughs) when I was 11 years old, I was over at a friend's house, and she secretly said that their next-door neighbor who was a teenager was pregnant. I was like, that's impossible! (laughs) She's not married! She can't be pregnant! That was dangerous information that I got, right? Um, So they laughed at me, of course. So one of the things that's important is that sex education needs to be complete and without moral insertions. I went through my teen years in um, the 80s in Iowa. I had sexual education in school. I learned all the general names and specific parts, like Vostevrins and the labia. I learned about menstruation and how babies develop in the uterus. I learned about sexually transmitted diseases and was shown gruesome pictures and was told about birth control options. But was I really taught anything about sex itself beyond a man inserts his penis, ejaculates, and the egg gets fertilized? Not really. Is, there really, is that really all there is to learn about sex? And what about LGBTQ sex? None of that's taught in our schools. In the eighth grade, I found a book on my mother's bedside table. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, I asked her about it because it didn't look like anything. It was given to her by the minister when my mom and dad were planning on getting married. It had a, it had a whole section on marital relations. I snuck the book from my mom's bedroom table. I took it to school. It happened to be perfect timing because we were taking the Iowa test of basic skills. And if you, <laughs> and if you finished your test early, you had, to, you had a chance to read, right? <laughs> right? So while I was in homeroom, I had my three best friends were also in the class. And so we would hurry through our test to read this book. It talked about the importance of foreplay and how to make it mutually satisfying sexual experience. We were glued to the book, because this is information we hadn't heard so far anywhere in school. And it was pretty good in a very clean, church-like manner. My other sex education came from books passed around the lunch table with the dog-eared corners, right? Um, To read the juicy parts. Pop music, magazines, Cosmo openly, Playboy and Penthouse secretly, And, of course, whisperings between teens about who was doing it. The only other good education I got was one time I snuck into the library in adult section and I found a sex manual, and I started flipping through it when I was about 12 or 13 years old. Today, depending on where you live, teens get a similar education on the mechanics of reproduction, learning body parts, sexually transmitted diseases, and very little to no information of birth control. control. That's something that has been taken out of sexual education. It's still the era of abstinence-only education. It's getting better, but it's still the era. Still in 2016, 37 states teach abstinence-only education. 26 states rely solely on it. But kids do learn about sex. They really learn about sex. Some from, from some of the same places, like sex ed in school, music, books, magazines, TVs, movies, and online free porn, and chat rooms, and texts. 
there are some great, great sites online for accurate information. There's scarletine and sex, etc., that kids can go to, but you know they're going to go looking elsewhere too, right? Teens and young 20s today are more likely to believe they should look and behave like their porn sexual role models. Think about that for a minute. How does porn sex compare or differ from your sexual expressions? Right? <laughs> this lack of complete sexual education in the school system is why the OWL, Our Whole Lives Sexual Education Program, was developed in the early 2000s. There was a previous one in the UUs in the 90s, but the, they totally made it new in the 2000s in, uh, with the Unitarian Universalists and the Church of, the Church of Christ. There are six courses. There's kindergarten to first grade. There's fourth to sixth grade. There's seventh to ninth grade, tenth to twelfth grade, young adult and adult. They are truly lifelong learnings about sexual education. Now, they're not all teaching the same thing. At five years old, you're learning about what your parts of your bodies are, what is safe touch, who to talk to if someone's not touching you safely, things like that. For a mature adult, it might be t- it's talking about many things about sexuality, including postmenopausal sex. In these programs, they learn about the mechanics and diseases, yes, but they're also learning about birth control options, masturbation, talking with partners about their relationship about sex. They learn about LGBTQ relationships and so much more. And these programs do help, and these students are more able to be prepared to talk about sex with their partners, but it's not enough. It's just a toe into what we need to be doing. Most of the sex that surrounds us is not healthy images of sex. And it's a very, very narrow focus of what sex can and should be. Most sex we hear about are between two gorgeous, young, heterosexual people. So our youth, and maybe the rest of us too, think sex is only for the young and beautiful. And the more sex you have, the better your relationship is. All of this is not true. Sex is for the young and old and middle-aged it's for the skinny and the fat. It's for, routine. it's for between men and women, women with women, men with men. And it's not always just two people together, but it might be three or four or whatever. Sex can happen once a month, once a day, rarely, or several times a day. Sex is healthy if the communication is healthy and the parties are all consenting. Silence about sex can lead to a lot of unsatisfying sexual relationships. Back to my college days again. When I worked as a peer educator, there was this wonderful psychologist. His name was Norm Story. He was very tall, very thin, about as unsexual looking to a 20-year-old as you can possibly imagine. Uh, But he had a lot of wonderful things to talk about with college students. I would sit in on some of the group sessions that he had with, um, with women. He told me, It's an awful lot of pressure on a partner to figure out what their partner likes and doesn't like if they don't tell them. It's not really fair, is it? The bedroom or anywhere in the relationship is not a place to be silent. And if you wait to have sex with someone else to figure out what you like and don't like, that's still a lot of guesswork and can lead to a lot of frustration. I sat in with him in these group sessions with women who were having sexual partners, were having sexual problems with their partners in various ways. He would assign homework to women to self-explore their bodies, to masturbate, to learn what felt good and what led to orgasm. They had, never, they had never done that before in their lives. They thought they couldn't. 
then they would try to show their partners or tell their partners what, was, what felt good and what didn't feel good. Most of these young women had been taught to not touch and that it was shameful to touch, sinful to touch. And I saw when they came back the next weeks how healthy it was for these women to feel free to learn about their bodies without the feeling of shame associated with it. Most of these women's sexual relations got better because they found the place they could talk about it. They were happier. Their partners were happier. And hopefully it continued as they um, developed in their maturity. And while no class is going to teach us to take a mirror and look at our genitals and give us assignments on masturbating, I think there's a place for that too. And how unfortunate it is that so many people live unsatisfactory sexual lives simply because they never learned that it could be better, all because it's it's a taboo topic to talk about. Some of the taboo is in our DNA, but much of it is societal. Okay, I'm not saying tomorrow we should all abandon societal code and start talking with strangers on the street about how often we get it on, where we do it, and with whom. Maybe we'll get there someday. For now, we should develop relationships with our friends that make a pact of openness about sex, making it okay to talk or ask questions about our sexual relationships. And we most definitely need to be talking about sex with our partners if we haven't done so already. So do a quick Google search, and you'll find pages and pages on anything I'm talking about today, but you will also find pages on how you should talk to your partner about sex. And of course, the types of topics you would talk about would differ with where you are in your relationship. In a new relationship, you'd want to talk more about STIs. Later, you might want to talk about what used to work but doesn't work anymore and how you want to change. So I got this from the American Sexual Health Association. So in a new relationship, you might want to talk about the type of relationship you want. Do you want it to be committed, non-committed, monogamous, non-monogamous, sexual, non-sexual? You should talk about your STI status, which is your uh, sexually transmitted infections. When were you last tested, and what were you tested for? What were the results? How many sexual partners have you had since the last round of testing? You should talk about birth control. Are you currently using birth control? Are you open to the possibility of pregnancy? What birth control protections do you want to use? You should talk about safer sex precautions. What barriers do you want to use? You should talk about sexual pleasure. What kind of touch feels good to you? Where are the places you especially enjoy being touched? You should talk about sexual desires. What are the sexual activities you know you like and want to do? Ones you might be willing to try. Do you have fantasies you would like to talk about, role play, or act out? What are your sexual boundaries? What are the sexual activities or fantasies you're not willing to explore? Are there places on your body that you don't want to be touched? As the relationship develops, we may become hesitant to talk about it again. Like, we had the talk, that's it. We don't need to talk about it anymore. It's done. But that's not, that's not how life works. Um, remember, we're not the same as we were 10 years ago, a month ago, even five minutes ago. So what felt good 10 years ago when you started having sex may not feel good now. Just like what felt good five minutes ago may not feel good now. So you have to keep talking about it for the duration of your relationship. And once it becomes a normal part of the conversation pool, it will get less and less awkward. But it is initially really hard to bring up intimate subjects with those you care about because there's a lot of risk involved. Just because the topic is intimate and the person is someone you love 
Don't back down from bringing it up. These things are important. So here's a few things that you need to think about when you're going to talk about sex. Timing is key. It is not a good idea to talk about sex while you're having sex or immediately following sex, especially if it's something that's a problem. You need to be honest. This may seem like common sense, but it's really easy to only bring up like a little bit of the problem, but not the full problem. Be very open about it. Avoid placing blame and attacking. Anytime a person feels attacked, the walls go up, right? So you want it to be that you're talking about your experiences, your thoughts, your feelings. Um, and this will, it will bring up emotions, that's true. But you're more likely to be heard if you talk about for you instead of what you're doing wrong. Um, ask questions. Seek to hear their side to get a clear perspective. This is especially good advice if you have a partner who was reluctant to have the conversation. You need to listen intently throughout the conversation, slowing down to really listen, keeping calm, keeping it together. Fill the conversation with respect. Avoid talking down to your partner and assuming they know what you're talking about. Also avoid interrupting them while they're speaking. But it's still hard. Some of you right now might be getting clammy hands just thinking about starting these conversations. It's hard because we're not used to practicing it. We're not used to doing it. We are combating our DNA that likes to keep our sexual acts secret and because we're still living with the remains of our, of our American puritanical past. So who of you have read Angela's Ashes? Quite a few of you, or seen the movie. So I, um, I commute to and from work, and so I was, just, um, I was just listening to that on Audible, and it was read by um, the author of the book. And in that book, Frank McCord talks about the shame he got as he got into his teenage years, the shame he would feel, as he called it, getting the excitement. That's what he called erections and sex. And he would be ashamed of going at himself as, a young, as young boys were taught that it was a sin to masturbate. They were told, don't do it. You're going against God. And he couldn't stop himself from doing it. And he felt so much shame. He stopped going to confessions. He felt he was doomed, as he said. Then he thought he, do- he was even more doomed and thought he sent his young lover to hell when she died from tuberculosis, tuberculosis because they were going at it on the green couch in her living room when they weren't married. And this tormented him for months and months that he had sent her to hell because that's what he had been taught. In 2016, we still have oaths of chastity, purity rings, homophobia, transphobia, calling couples living together living in sin, sluts, slut slurring, I'm sorry, slurs like slut, and so on. Open sexual acceptance is slowly sleeping into our society, but people are still ashamed of who they are. Many are still ashamed by who they've slept with or the fact that they've slept with no one. They feel ashamed of their fantasies and even what might turn them on. This feeling of shame needs to be erased, and sexuality in all forms need to be talked about. Many children are still discouraged from touching themselves, and teens are told to be abstinent. Girls are still called whores for having sex too young or having too many sexual partners, and even for having knowledge about sex. That's not ladylike. The flip slide to the slut-shaming coin is virgin shaming. We do that too. The media tells us that if you're not having sex, you must have a religious conviction that's oppressing you or something's wrong with you psychologically. Peers might call you an ice princess or a prude. 
bottom line is your sex life is part of your life. And it should be able to be talked about openly and without fear of shame. But, as we've discussed, we don't talk about it. Instead of asking someone about it, we go to the Internet. And we ask questions there. Why does my penis curve when erect? Can a penis break? Where exactly is my clitoris? Where can I buy sex toys? Can I use Vaseline as a lubricant? All of these questions should be answerable by a parent or a teacher or a friend. Yet we rely on Google instead. Imagine if we learned how to drive a car by Googling it on the Internet like we do about sex. So we need to start talking about it, and we need to start naming it. It can be difficult, but we did talk about sex here today. I didn't die from embarrassment. You didn't die from embarrassment. And I hope it opened a door to talk about it in your lives. For the future, I hope it will lead to acceptance and honesty so that we, begin, so that we can begin to live in a sex-positive society.